0: Welcome everyone to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips too. So let's get the show started.
1: Welcome to our listeners around the world via the podcast, our listeners on our FM station in New York and our two Philadelphia area radio stations. It's Tuesday evening drive time for you. Great show today. We'll talk to author Priya Fielding Singh about her great book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. And then our second half of our show is a very great interview with Chef Timothy Witcher. He is the executive chef and co-owner of the Wing Kitchen in Glassboro and Turnersville, New Jersey. Chef Gene, introduce us to your fabulous guest.
2: Well, it's a great honor to introduce Priya Fielding Singh the author of How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. Priya, welcome to Food, Farms, and Chefs.
3: Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here.
2: So, Priya, your book that is just coming out um, really just changed my my vision of everything that I knew and thought about diet and wealth and poverty and food inequality in america and you you dive so deeply into the family unit and and a lot about you know mothers and children and raising mothers and children and what you know diet and how that affects them and wealth and poverty and such but you didn't come from the food world you didn't come from you know the culinary world you didn't even come from the dietary world you you know you your background from what I read as a sociologist and you do a lot of research in cardiovascular disease. How did you get so involved in this particular topic in discovering about food inequality in America?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a sociologist, which means that I'm really interested in how people make people and groups and societies make choices, how broader structures impact Um, what can seem like really personal decisions. And for me, I've been interested in inequality more broadly since I was a child. You know, my first memory of really thinking about inequality was when I was nine years old and my family became a foster family. And for a decade, most of my childhood, we we took in kids from, um, you know, who had grown up in really difficult circumstances. And I remember as a kid, you know, looking at my foster siblings who were sleeping in a bed next to me and knowing that even though we shared a room for a moment, we had come from really different places and we were on really different trajectories. And I wanted to understand why that was, how our circumstances and the broader environments that we were being raised in really put us on very different paths. And I became, uh, when I was doing my doctoral training, fascinated in – inequalities as they relate to health. And I found that one topic that was not being spoken about as much within the sociological literature was how our diets, how the food that we eat every single day of our lives, really profoundly shapes those health outcomes. And um, I felt compelled to do in-depth ethnographic research on how families make decisions about food, how their different circumstances shape the way that they have access to food, that they think about food, that they feel about food, and how understanding that can give us more leverage in grasping why we have these really widespread inequalities in uh, diet-related disease um, and broader health outcomes in our society.
2: Well, one of the things that I loved and you know discussed in your book is, you know, how families eat and why they eat particular things is much more than just food that people can afford. That, you know, the poverty or the affluence is affecting the culture and the way we approach things. And and you can you touch a little bit about what that means in, in you know, the inner city, in rural America, in places that you've done some of this research you know, how, how the changing mm-hmm. behavioral patterns and education about food and, and, and the outlook on food is affected.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think about the book, the book is about why it is so difficult for families in this country to eat a healthy diet and why, in particular, it's virtually impossible for low-income families to do that. And I take... Uh, for the book, basically a starting point, you know, these two facts that we know about American food inequality. So the first fact is that we have this wealth of scientific research showing us that there's a growing gap in the diets and nutrition between rich and poor in this country where the rich continue to make these nutritional gains whereas the, the poor don't. And this is a gap that's durable, it's growing and it matters a lot because of just how fundamental our health, our diets are to our health. Um, And so I think about these nutritional disparities as really helping drive broader health disparities. But the the important second fact that's the basis of the book is that despite our best efforts to understand the drivers of nutritional inequality, um, our explanations for it have in many ways really fallen flat. And the biggest one, the one that people um, listening to your show will recognize, uh, the food desert argument, in particular, has been a really disappointing explanation for why low-income Americans struggle to – secure a nutritious diet and this argument basically states that people living in food deserts or areas where there are um, a dearth of supermarkets have little choice but to eat unhealthy food from convenience stores or gas stations and food deserts are a problem that the government has invested millions of dollars in over the past decade to solve and they represent an idea that a lot of the public has bought into as far as what is the leading cause of poor diets and health Um, but Others' work and my work suggests that, you know, these explanations are actually not really borne out by data. In fact, the data we have suggests that geographic food access plays a pretty minimal role in our diets. And so the, the question for me was, well, what else is driving these nutritional disparities? And that's the question that the book tried to answer. And it does so by centering the voices of families across the income spectrum as they go about their lives eating and feeding. And it looks at, in particular, the constellation of other hardships and barriers that parents face in their efforts to secure a nutritious diet for their children. And one of the big things that I hope readers will take home from the book is that being rich or poor in this country doesn't just shape the geographic or even just the financial access that we have to healthy food. It also fundamentally shapes the meaning of food itself. It changes what food Means uh, for a parent trying to raise their child in a context of scarcity and poverty, it impacts what it means for a parent with more resources to do the same. And these meanings, um, I argue, are actually really at the heart of what is driving nutritional inequality in this country. And and changing people's circumstances to impact those meanings is really a solution that we can think about if we want to to make headway there.
4: You really do
2: dive into that approach of how what food means to different individuals and and i'm going to reference something i came across many years ago i i do a lot of work with the homeless and, and food banks and making sure that you know in the special events industry leftover food gets to those people that are in need and to you know families in need throughout and i happen to be involved in an ice cream festival in the city of Philadelphia. And at the end of the festival, one of the companies came up to me and they had about, you know, I don't know, 40 or 45 five gallon tubs of ice cream. And they said, Oh, you know, do you have a, a children's group or something like that that, you know, we could donate this to? And I said, Well, let's donate it to the homeless shelter, you know, or it's donated it to the, the local food bank here in the city. And the person turned to me and they said, but they, they don't want that, it's ice cream. And I said, well, you know, yes, it's not, you know, the same nutritionally sound diet, but doesn't mean that people don't want that. You talk a lot in your book about, you know, the role of poverty or disparity in, in how we look at what food is. So how do the inner city families or individuals that are suffering in poverty approach food differently than maybe the middle income or, or those those of us who are out there, you know, in in Mm -hmm. the middle income or upper middle income.
3: Yeah. So one big thing that I describe in my book is that for parents who are raising their children in context of poverty, doing so means basically saying no to their children all the time. Um, not having a lot of money means that you can't say yes to your kid's request very often. You can't say yes to new pairs of jeans, to replacing a shattered phone screen, to family vacations, to trips to a water park. And as I spent time with low-income families and I watched, you know, the emotional toll that saying no to your children takes on low-income parents, I realized something really simple, which is that, In a context of no, food was one of the few things that low-income parents could consistently say yes to. Like, well, you know, the low-income, one of the low-income mothers who I spent a lot of time with, she told me she could always find a buck at the bottom of her purse or overturn a sofa cushion and find 50 cents that she could buy her kids a bag of chips with or a can of soda. And so in these contexts where... You have to deny your kids' requests. Junk food, the stuff that kids ask for, is a really powerful and unique medium to show kids that you love them, that you hear them, and that you can give them not just what they need to survive, but also some of what they want, some of what brings smiles to their faces every single day. And so in that context, you know, junk food, sure, it's not a nutritious choice but it is an emotionally and psychologically nourishing choice even if from a public health perspective it isn't advisable and on the other end of the spectrum you know for higher income parents that i spent a lot of time with raising their kids in these contexts of affluence meant that they could say yes to pretty much everything their kids asked for you know nothing was really off limits and you know easily replace a shattered phone screen definitely get a pair of new jeans for the beginning of the school year And so in that context, saying no to kids' junk food requests wasn't so emotionally distressing. You know, these parents didn't worry that their kids were going without. They had other ways to emotionally nourish their children. And because of that, it was easier to say no to those requests. And so these, you know, the fundamentally different meaning that a bag of Cheetos can take on given the broader resources and constraints or um, possibilities that parents have at their disposal to show love, affection, and care to their children can really help us understand why kids might have different diets across the income spectrum.
2: That statement itself really put to rest that whole discussion about you know food deserts that everybody talked about in philadelphia recently we opened up you know the first supermarket in you know the the deep inner city and how important that was but it's so much more as you just touched upon that you know that unhealthy bag of chips becomes a emotional reward as opposed to if you have a lot of affluence it it doesn't have that and that's going to lead to you know such terrible long-term you know effects on generations that you know we as a country are going to struggle to to overcome that Mm -hmm. what are some of the solutions that you see the government or you know private sector or you know education can start to do
3: Mm -hmm. absolutely so I think that one thing that's really clear is that we're not going to solve nutritional inequality simply by putting supermarkets into food deserts or by teaching people about the importance of nutrition. Like increasing access and education, those are necessary, but they're also completely insufficient for actually working our way out of this massive inequality. Um, I think about policies that might not necessarily seem related to food, but also, have a ton to do with food. Policies that lift families out of poverty, that give them financial security and stability. You know, for low income families, if they had the means to provide their children with other things that their kids asked for, that would fundamentally shift the meaning of food. It's only because these parents are in such financially strapped, financially insecure positions that food takes on that meaning. So we need solutions, you know, of course we need solutions that are related to food. We need to increase federal food assistance so that, you know, SNAP dollars don't run out within the first two weeks of the month. We need uh, reducing barriers to help families access um, federal food dollars, increase access to food banks, all of those things but we also need policies that ensure a living wage, that provide affordable housing, that doesn't take up most of families' income. And I think if we can empower families, if we help families out of extremely difficult economic and social positions, then those moves will also have a tremendous cascading effect on their food choices.
2: Here in the city of Philadelphia, um, a couple of years ago, there was a very controversial measure put forth, and it was a tax on sugary beverages. Um, they called it the soda tax, and, you know, tremendously um, controversial when it came about. And, you know, one of the arguments was that it was going to provide, you know, for better nutritional um, and dietary, you know, help to to inner city individuals because now sodas and things like that are going to cost more. And I could see one of the things that we saw in the city of Philadelphia is that people will take public transportation outside of the city to get those sugary beverages, to get the sodas, to get the, the high sugary iced teas and things like that and come back in. But you shed so much light on you know why that is too because there's so much more than just that dietary need there's you know there's a, a great deal of you know family satisfaction in providing some yes for your family so you know it's it's interesting i would love to take this to the city and say maybe you should have read this book that existed at the time but maybe you should contact this person and this tax may not be what you're really after.
3: I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I I think that example really speaks to the fact that, you know, the limits of this food access argument, that it's not just about what people live within a mile of. Sure, that, that matters. But we also have really strong emotional, psychological, symbolic attachments to food. We're willing to go many miles to get the food that we want. Um, we're willing to to sacrifice things to eat the food that brings us comfort, that brings us joy. And so I think we need to start talking more about those meanings, how they shape the way that we eat versus thinking about this in really kind of simple terms, like what grocery store we live next to. That's part of it, but that's, it's a really small part of it, actually.
2: I, you know, I, I can't say enough about how much reading your book has changed my approach to looking at, well, as a, as a, chef and as a culinary educator, as a person who spends, you know, every day trying to educate individuals about why we eat particular things, the history of, you know, uh, foods and, and cultural influences, but I've never approached it from, you know, that emotional point of view. And, and I understand, you know, the power of, of food and, and emotions and you know how that brings back memories and, and how that works. But you know, you really just have shattered that that ceiling for me and made me look at things so much differently. And I and I appreciate that. One of the um, you know things that your book really does is it puts to rest, in my opinion. You know, everything that I was taught and the truth about hunger, wealth, poverty, and all. But you also present some very realistic arguments on simple things that could be done from a large government scale, as you said, you know, providing for SNAP that doesn't run out in two weeks. For even increasing, and I know in many cities, you cannot buy certain types of foods with food stamps or with government assistance. You know, you can't go in and buy, you know, you can't use your your food assistance to buy high sodium chips or, you know, candy or things like that. Mm-hmm. And that may not be necessarily the best thing from what I, I'm taking from this discussion.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I think a lot about as a, Meaningful angle for making progress here is also starting with children. Um, You know, in pretty much every family that I met, kids were asking for junk food, and and that's not surprising. Junk food is really heavily marketed toward children, it's also particularly marketed toward low income kids of color. Um, And the question that I like to ask is, well, what if kids didn't ask their parents for these foods? In fact, what if kids asked their parents for healthier, more nutritious foods? And that's where I think that institutions like schools have a really powerful role to play. Um, You know, if you had asked me before the pandemic, something that I've been advocating for for a long time, universal school meals, where every child is entitled to a, a free school meal, that used to seem completely politically infeasible, and, and we've seen with the pandemic that that was actually, uh, that happened <laughs> for the past year, and, and states like California and Maine are making that change permanent. And I, what I would like to see is not only expanded access to kids, but also much more rigorous nutrition standards for those meals. You know, schools are a hub of learning, but we haven't worked nutrition into that learning or education. But what about if at schools kids learned about healthy food? They learned about where food was grown. They got exposure to different tastes and ingredients and cultures. Um, You know, that could make a really profound difference. Those kids would carry those preferences back into their families. and, And you know, especially like I show with low-income families, where kids' preferences matter a great deal. You know, the moms that I met, the families that I met, they would work to honor their kids' healthy preferences as well. And so I think that's an angle that we really need to explore, and we need to think about how do we set up the next generation to feel and look and think differently about food, to have better um, exposure and opportunities to learn about nutritious food. So that they can bring those preferences back into their families and and, and have an impact on families' diets.
2: Well, your book is coming out at such a key time in America, in my opinion. You know, when we're, you know, talking about the needs of many and trying to, you know, bring some equality back to America, but also in an age when so many chefs and food people are reaching across lines with, you know, let's teach people about my ethnic background. Let's show people what this foods represent. Let's, you know, cross the barriers and begin to educate the next generation on, you know, some of the, the healthy choices available in other parts of the world, or flavors from this part of the world, or, you know, this type of cuisine. So I I really think that this, your book is something that not only chefs and culinary schools should be using, but, you know, anybody who has a deep passion for food and understanding food should read this book as much as they should go to a you know, Middle Eastern or an Asian restaurant or someplace and say, you know, I want to learn a little bit about more about their food, about their culture, because I think that people will be enlightened by what you put down as much as trying any of those situations and for a much more reasonable cost.
3: Thank you so much.
2: I, I cannot even begin to say enough how, you know, as somebody who, who spent my career teaching about the history and culture of food, what, uh, what your book did for my outlook on that. And, and I taught inner city for five years of my life. I taught culinary arts inner city for five years of my life. So a lot of what I read really made me look at some of the interactions I had so much differently and and the students I had and, Mm -hmm. you know, things that I learned from them and, and the, a lot of light bulbs went off in that aspect. Thank you. What in, in before we get into where we can find your book and all that? What do you think is the number one takeaway from your book and from your research that the average reader can say, "Wow, yes, I that I could look at food that way."
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, two things. Uh, The first thing is that when we talk about food and inequality, we need to stop talking about food deserts. We can talk about food access. We can talk about affordability of food. We can talk about financial resources, but we need to stop um, putting so much emphasis on food deserts because fixing food deserts is not our way out of this. It is really just a Band-Aid, and we have much, much deeper wounds that we have to heal. And the second thing is that I think food is a really loaded thing. It's something that we are often quick to judge the choices of others. Um, It's difficult to put ourselves in other people's shoes when when we evaluate their dietary choices, but what my book hopes to show is that any of us in a position very different from our own might make really, really different food choices. And that doesn't mean that we're careless, that we are not concerned about our health or the health of our children. Um, Our broader context, the resources that we have, the attachments that we make, all of those things have really profound impacts on our diet. And they're worth understanding uh, before we judge them. And, And that's what my book tries to do. It tries to deepen our understanding our empathy for others and for ourselves and and for that reason i i hope that your listeners will consider picking it up
2: well how the other half eats the untold story of food and inequality in america i loved a uh, very simple review from publisher weekly that just said deeply empathetic it really truly is um eye-opening as well Priya sielding Singh, what a pleasure to have you on. Can you tell everybody where we can find your book and how we can follow more of your great research?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So the book will be available on November 16th uh, in every big and local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's also on Kindle and Audible where you can hear me read uh, the, the preface and the epilogue. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Priya F. Singh Um, and you can stay up to date with my work and research that way.
2: Well, thank you very much for joining us. I do encourage anybody who has a deep-rooted interest in food and the history of food and why we eat the way we eat to go out on the 16th and get a copy or download it on Kindle um, and do that. The thing I'm most excited about, I have a... Daughter, who's a sophomore in college, who just switched her major to sociology, has a very big interest in food and and inequality in America, and has never listened to my show. I actually think that in this episode. I think I could get her to listen. So, because every time I did, you listen to the show? No, I think I got this one. I'm very excited about that.
3: That sounds like a thank perfect. Thank you so bit,
2: much yeah. for joining <laughs> us. It was a great pleasure uh, having you and thank you for the very important research that you're doing. Um, absolutely out there making a difference.
3: Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to to speak with you and thank you all for your work as well.
1: Thank you so much, Priya.
3: Thank you, Priya. This was really great. All thank right. All. Such a pleasure.
0: Let's take a break and we'll be right back. To become a sponsor of our show and have your business or event promoted on every single podcast platform, to Philadelphia radio stations on Tuesdays at 6 pm evening drive time, an FM station in New York, and to the millions of Facebook users worldwide with access to the Facebook mobile app. Send us an email to either food farms and chefs at yahoo.com or Dining on a dime at yahoo.com.
1: And we're back. Amorous Pollock, introduce us to your fabulous guest.
5: Hi, I would like to introduce everyone to Tim Witcher, who is the executive chef and co-owner of The Wing Kitchen, which is in Turnersville, New Jersey and in Glassboro, New Jersey. Tim, thank you and welcome to our show.
4: Thank you so much. I'm excited. (laughs)
5: <laughs> I'm excited to have you on too. Um, in you know, I'm I'm a South Jersey girl as well and you were born in South Jersey. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to become a chef? Um, I know that your grandfather is one of your one of your um inspirations. And so why don't you Absolutely. tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, so first of all, I mean, Willemboro is one of the greatest places on earth growing up. There's been so much talent that came out of Willemborough and uh, I don't live there anymore, but I just thank that culture and uh, the environment and the community that was there that fed my dreams, my passions, and uh, it was all just wonderful. Um, so obviously my first inspiration is my mom. Um, my mother is a wonderful, wonderful cook, and uh I was right next to her in the kitchen while she was whipping them stuff. Now, she's not like me. I'm a teacher. So I give away all my secrets. I had to pull the secrets <laughs> out of mine. Um, <laughs> so it's a little different. But uh, even to this day, she still won't give me her sweet potato pie recipe. But I made her give it to my daughter, who also won't share it with me, even though I told her that was the deal. But,
5: you know, whatever. Um, wow. Now we' we'll be keeping it. Yeah. <laughs> Are they holding it back because going they're like, on. I don't like, want you me, teaching anybody that secret? <laughs> i
4: guess, I don't know. So my daughter, now me and my daughter, she's my oldest. We're like, you know, that's my road dog. So I'm like, all right, listen, grandma's going to show you how to make the sweet potato pie. So when you're done, you got to tell daddy so we can, you know, you know, recreate it. And she's like, nope, <laughs> I can't tell you, dad. Sorry. Grandma told me not to. <laughs> Grandma, <what's gonna> do? <laughs> that's funny. But, um, yeah, I mean, she's, yeah, she doesn't cook much anymore, but, man, she was an amazing cook, fed the whole neighborhood, and uh, it was wonderful. So then when I got my um, my classical training, um, being a teacher, and I'm not even sure how I'm a teacher because I hated school. I hated school in elementary school and junior high school. And so I got to high school, and uh, when I got to high school, I knew I wanted to be a chef already, and culinary arts was amazing for me. I loved every bit of it. I look forward to it every day, and it really got me through and got my academics up also because, I mean, I can't go to college and my academics are not good, and I want to do this culinary thing, but uh, culinary inspired me through the whole thing,
5: which was wonderful. And I know that you you also attended the Academy of Culinary Arts at Mays Landing, um, as well as yeah. the Culinary Arts in Burlington County Institute of Technology, I believe.
4: Yeah yeah. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so um and the one that was B C. I T, that was my high school. Um, and then I went to culinary school, um, which was the Academy of Culinary Arts in Mays Landing, um, which was wonderful for me. Um so my mom had a stroke when I was a junior in high school. And I planned on going to either CIA or Johnson & Wells and then when that happened I said, you know what, I can't leave mom that far. So I went to Academy of Culinary Arts and they were wonderful, you know, at the time and it was a, a really good transition for me and to be able to be close to home still and still have a great culinary education, and um, that was amazing. I had some great, great chefs, some that are not here anymore, but, man, I was sitting in class and asked so many questions and the class, and they were never like, oh, listen, get out of here, or try to rush me off. They would just sit with me and talk with me, and I would just keep picking their brain and writing notes, and uh, it was wonderful. I mean, it was a great experience. So I try to do that same thing with my students. When I see somebody that's really eager and really hungry and really wants to know what's going on, I'll take all the time in the world. If I have to stay an extra hour and give them the knowledge that I have or, you know, point them to the right direction, I do, because it was such a help to me when I was coming up.
5: Yeah. Now, how much of that did you learn from hands-on in school versus when you were working in the kitchens of some of the hotels that are around this area as one of, you know, the chefs? So, you know what, I don't know the percentage,
4: <laughs> but,
5: Um I'm not,
4: sure. <laughs> I'm not sure the exact percentage, but I'll tell you this much. Um, I, I think high school culinary arts, college culinary arts, um, is what the student makes of it. So no matter what university you go to, I know, everybody has their alma mater and their, you know, gung-ho whatever else that goes on, but it really is what you take out of it. It's really how much you tap into those chefs that are there. Um, and I did learn an incredible amount of things. I still use it today. But then when I got out, um, I had a, a wonderful chef, and I have a wonderful chef. He's still my chef. Um, his name's Darius Peacock, and uh, he won CHOP twice. The very first season was on it, food network, and he was my first chef that was wonderful at the Hilton in Cherry Hill. And uh, the same thing, the same way I um, took to my chefs in college, I took to him. The only difference was he beat me up and harassed me every day in the kitchen. <laughs> um unlike the culinary instructors, they would be nice to me. Chef Darius was not nice to me. Uh, but <laughs> I knew he liked me because he kept harassing me, kept beating me up, and he kept giving me knowledge, though. And uh, to this day, he's one of my best friends, and uh, he's a really good dude. So, um, I mean, learning hands-on is incredible. And I, I encourage anybody. I tell my students also. I say, you know, you don't have to go to college to, to be a chef and be in the industry. It's really just being a constant learner. So if you go yeah. somewhere, get into somebody that's wonderful, then move on to somebody else, and just keep it going, because that's the way Um, I learned both sides. So I had the, the benefit and the privilege to be in both areas, learning all the book work stuff and the hands-on um, for pretty much, you know, six or seven years, and then being in the industry and doing all that kind of stuff also.
5: I was going to say, well, you yeah. you definitely stay busy.
2: <laughs> yes, I, I, I'm very busy. As a fellow culinary educator, uh, somebody who spent fifteen years in a high school yeah. classroom and you know, additional time doing other stuff, I so admire that you're still out there doing that on a day to day basis and helping your young folks. And you are so right that if a student wants to achieve, they don't need to go to Johnson Wells or Culinary Institute if they have the drive and the passion yeah. to do that and they learn those basics and you know, you know more than anyone out there that you can tell in a week or two whether that student's gonna be great at what they do mm. because they're the ones who continuously do it and push it and do that. If you were gonna give some advice to somebody yeah. thinking about going out into our industry today, what would that what would that one bit of advice? Be? Um to be just be hungry. I mean be be a pest. <laughs> you know, I've had students that's like
4: always near me, always next to me. I'm like, God you know, get out of here, get out of my office. Get, what, are you, what are you doing here early? What are you doing here late? Um, but those are the kids, those are the young students, those are the young culinarians that want it, you know, and don't let anything knock you off. There's going to be very bad days in the kitchen, as you guys know, and very bad days in the industry and, and bad days now on social media and bad days, you know, in the news, whatever else may be. But, you know, stick to your guns, um, you know, figure out what your core style is. And keep adding to it, and keep learning, and just, just be a career learner. Um, like I said, still to this day, man, my students teach me different things. I've had students from all over the place, all over the world, um, and uh, I'm like, yo, tell me how you do it. And I'm humble with it. Listen, just tell me. I, I don't know how to, to make pickles from Haiti, from, from you know, from Haiti. So tell me how you guys do it. Tell me how moms makes it. And they give me everything, you know. And some of the moms comes in. Oh, you like that? Let me show you how to do this. And I'll take those <laughs> different flavors of and add it to my own style. And and I I just, you know, I just always just um uh, give that advice to them. Listen, be a constant learner. And great
5: speaking advice. of and that that is great advice. And speaking of being a constant learner, I mean one of the big, you know, things on your resume basically is you have been for a very long time at your alma mater and you know, at Burlington as well as Burlington um, County of Institute of Technology um, and the <clears throat> and Camden County Technical School in Gloucester Township um, in that you you know at some point in time you you went on chopped um, and I don't know if Darius was your inspiration of that or if your friend um, Kevin Spraga <laughs> was was your info on that but I <laughs> you know, as I said, you stay busy and you, you know, that gave you kind of a a platform to create what, you know, what became the Wing Kitchen as well. So you're just always just busy. You're you're hungry too. So, you know, um, what do you tell your students (laughs) when, (laughs) you're welcome. What do you tell your students when, you know, they come up to you with any questions of like, how did you get started? Like, you know,
4: yeah, um, well, a lot of stuff, I mean, like I said, it's not easy, for one thing, and uh, I've been blessed to to keep myself around people that were positive and not just positive, not stagnant, people that wanted to keep moving and keep advancing their career, and I've always been competitive. I mean, so I've always been competitive. No matter what it is, I'm just like, in, in my head, I'm like, I'm competing against myself or somebody else, and it's kind of weird, but regardless of that, um, <laughs> so uh, Kevin Spragan <laughs> I mean, I'll be all chefs are kind of weird anyway, but we're gone to that. <laughs> so Kevin Spraga was a sophomore when I was a freshman at BCIT. And uh, okay. we, you know, we walked in, we were going to fight the first day. We had the same shirt on, and he was, I mean, he's a trash talker. So I'm a <laughs> new kid in the school, and we're talking trash in the hall with him, like, whatever. And I get to culinary, and this guy's there. I said, oh, my mm-hmm. God, this guy's in my shop. And uh, from that day, you know, I, he was good. I was good. And we start going at him. And we start competing in like skills USA. And, um, uh, he, he kept beating me and I'm pissed. And, but we're okay. friends though, at this point. Um, but he always drive me to be better. You know, he always kept driving me to be better. So then I got, um, and the Hilton and then chef Derek said, I'm going to his new show, whatever else. And now chop is like 60 seasons in, but it was season one. And, uh, he gets on and he wins and he wins again. And, uh, I'm like, man, I would love to try to get on one day to the Food Network. I always wanted a cooking show. I grew up watching cooking shows. I'm like, man, that would be awesome. And then um, my, uh, Kevin Kevin Sprager had got on Top Chef on Bravo. And he yeah. got on Top Chef, and he wins the season of Top Chef. The, the D.C. season, he wins the whole thing. Oh. And uh, I'm so excited for him. I'm never, I'm never jealous about what they're doing. I'm excited for them. You know, and yeah. it just inspires me to try to be better. Um, so I'm excited for him. You know, I'm crying at it his, at his reveal, and, you know, it, it was wonderful. I helped him open up his restaurants, the Fat Ham and Spraga and, you know, Jennifer Commons, where they were open in Philadelphia. And um, I'm like, man, this is just amazing. But at the same time, learning what they did. What did they have to go through to open the restaurants? What do they have to go through for competitions? What do they have to different do? Yeah. And then finally, um, I get my shot. I get my shot and I'm excited, you know, I'm ready to go. I go to New York City, I get in Chop Kitchen, and uh, I make it to the end, and I lose. And my world comes crumbling down in my head. For for but 20 seconds, too... I want to quit culinary arts.
5: Yeah, but you are way too motivated to let that, like, keep you down. So you bounce back when you got yeah, that yeah. call.
4: Yes, so... uh I still remember going home at night, and the next day my kids knew I was going on, and I had to like, face them and tell them, you know, dad didn't win, and they're crying. I'm like, you know, let's stop that. You know, we're going <laughs> to make this better, whatever. And then they called. And after I lost, before it even aired, um, I lost, and I go back in the kitchen, go back in the lab, and I start working on new things and start studying more. I get a call to be on a show called Rewrapped. Now, Rewrapped isn't on anymore. It wasn't very popular, but it was on the Food Network. And it was a spinoff of the show called Unwrapped. So Unwrapped was Mark Summers, and they would go into different uh, factories, and they would show you how they make Tasty Cakes and how they make um, Juju Beans and Twizzlers, whatever it may be. So this was a spinoff show that was a competition, and it was three chefs. And in the first round, it would give you an iconic snack to recreate. Um, And then if you made it through that round, you had to take take the iconic snack and make a dish out of it. So I get on the first round. I get into that studio, and the one chef won cutthroat kitchen. The other chef won chopped. And they're like, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a teacher. And they're like, huh? Oh, okay. And I get on, and I win the first round. And I had to recreate a Tasty Cake um, coffee cake, which I grew up on because I'm in this area, and Tasty Cakes are like, you know, like God around here. So I, um, I won the first round, and then I, I killed the second round, and I win that. And it's not ten thousand dollars but I won a year's supply of tasty cakes. Great. But regardless, I'm on T V and I won. Um yeah. and then I get the call to do Chopped Again for redemption and I win redemption. And it was uh it was so much better, it was so much more of a blessing that I won the second time. Because uh I really just like thank God for the second one because you know, if I won the first time I wouldn't have had all the exposure that I have now. I I wouldn't spend two hours on the food network. Um so it was just the right timing when um that happened.
5: So then that brings you to when, you know, opening up after that, The go, you know, your, the Wing Kitchen. Um, now, I know that you started with yep. just one day a week at um, at one of the local country clubs. And, you know, it, you were basically mm-hmm. making food on Sundays for, you know, NFL days. Um, but then you became more popular. Yep. Your donut... <laughs> Came into play, um, and apparently is extremely <laughs> craveable. So how did how did that come about? Yeah, um, the
4: donut's crazy.
5: <laughs> it's
4: a
3: buttermilk um, so, donut, right?
4: So, donut, like, so um, yeah, so we we take a um, a hardworking average donut, you know, like a hardworking man or woman in this industry right now, and we we put a tuxedo on him or her or a nice dress. And we 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 uh, tie it up. <laughs> Um, and it's nuts and, and nobody does it in the country. Um, so we pretty much take a donut and we make it the way mama made fried chicken
5: mm-hmm. and it
4: stays crispy and it's hot and it's salty and sweet. And then we add, if you want it, we add a, a salted caramel sauce to go with it. And it's nuts. So our yeah. hashtag is don't forget the donut.
5: <laughs> Cause uh, I read that. But, I was like, yeah, that so sounds amazing. Really
4: <laughs> it's uh, it's crazy. And I, it's just weird because I'm like, you know, I want to try to come up with a dessert that we can do. Um, and I didn't know what to do. I was messing around with everybody, does waffles or whatever. And I'm like, you know, I'm not sure what to do yet. And uh when we first opened them one day a week, everybody's working. So both of my kids are working. It was only had two at that time. Both my kids are working. My wife's working, whatever. So um, I had to go to the supermarket, you know how we do, get some ingredients. And um, there's a pack of glazed donuts. So I said, like, I'll get that for the kids. I have to eat some on the way to the golf course. So they eat a couple donuts in the car. I get to the golf course. And as I'm driving, I'm like, you know what? What would happen if I fry this the way you fry chicken? So I get to the restaurant. You know, I'm excited because I always like try new things. And uh, I buttermilk it, and I bread it up in the seasoned flour that we use for the chicken. And I drop it in the fryer. And I give it to my business partner and my wife. And they're like, yo, what the heck are these?
2: Should I said, the donut.
4: What do you think? Oh, my God. These are amazing. So then two golfers comes in. I never forget. It's like a rainy kind of cold day. They come in. I say, I want you guys to try something. They're like, oh, my God. Is these on the menu? I'm like, no, 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 not yet, but next week they'll be on there. And that was it, and
5: then we start flying with it. Yeah, and now since then you've opened up a second location, which is the one in Gloucester County, um, and our Gloucester Township, sorry, and then you move, are, are expanding beyond that, too. To let us know, you know, what are, what are some of the things we can look forward to?
4: Yeah, it's been, it's been an exciting, um, fast-moving train. Um, so we opened up um, in Turnersville. Well, actually, we were at the golf course first, and yeah. then we opened up there full-time at the golf course, and then we opened up the Glassboro location that's near Rowan University. And uh, we opened that location up right before the pandemic hit. So in that February, right before the pandemic hit, we opened up and we were busy and rocking and rolling and open late night. And then the pandemic hit and all the kids left. So, but thank God we were still able to stay open and the wonderful community in Glassboro and and Gloucester Township still supported us and uh, kept us through. And then we ended up moving um, last October from the golf course to, to the other location in Turnersville. And, um, we did the whole wing kitchen over there, which has been a blessing and has been good also. And this past summer, we actually opened up in the Clementon Park in uh, Clementon, New Jersey. So Clementon Park oh, wow. was, was closed for about a year and a half. And then they got new owners, so we ended up getting a, a chicken stand right in their splash world for the for the last summer, and that was uh, wonderful. I mean, that was really good stuff. Uh, so hopefully we'll be back there next summer. We'll see what happens. And then I get a call from my good friend that I used to work for with Aramark uh, Rich Borman, and he is uh, hes one of the leads that runs the food and beverage for Spectacore for uh, uh, the Subaru Stadium. So they he invited And I heard that was, that was one of your favorite uh, sports teams. So.
2: Yes.
5: <laughs> I know. It's funny because I don't watch sports, but I do watch them.
4: <laughs> <laughs> it's also I've never been to that stadium before. And they invited us up for the biggest game of their year. It was them versus, I guess they called Club America from uh, Mexico. Mm. And it was a nuts, rowdy um, event. And they came up, gave us a club box, showed us different areas, showed us the standing would be taken over. And uh, so, so um, you know, God prayerfully that we'll be in that stadium at the beginning of the next season.
5: Ooh. Which is awesome. I'm looking forward to that because I'm going to be there often. <laughs> Uh, now, yeah, I
4: know there that so
5: I know that you also are looking to um open up a Witcher's kitchen, which is going to be a uh, food prep, which incorporates yeah, you so, know um originally, yeah,
4: all kind of meal prep and catering, so originally, the wing Kitchen that's in Turnsville now was a Witcher's oh. kitchen, so originally we were going to stay at the golf course. And we're going to open up this, um, you know, prep area, meal prep, catering, uh, commissary kitchen out of that location. But then when the pandemic hit, and you know, some things changed, I said, like, you know what? We'll just move the wing kitchen to this location. Um, so we do still have a whole catering menu that's on online. You go to the wingkitchen.com. There's a Witcher's Kitchen link, and you can go see all the different packages we have on there, and we still do all different good stuff um, from Witcher's Kitchen also. But um, So hopefully in the future, in the near future, we'll be able to get another Witcher's Kitchen and have like a real commissary, especially having different um, outlets that's going out. Um, we're going to, you know, make all the food there and kind of ship it out to different places and try to get some things bottled and, and some of the spices, spice rubs bottled up, and just keep on expanding.
5: And when you do that, I want you back on the show announcing that as a hear it first. <laughs> Cause that would I'm be sad like Let me know. <laughs> yeah, anytime you know, let
4: me know. I'm, I'm here for you. <laughs> you guys are awesome.
5: <laughs> exactly. And that, you know, you also have a food truck on top of everything else.
4: Yes. We have, um, we have our, 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 our uh, Wing Kitchen Express that, uh, goes out all over the place, all the different local wineries and distilleries and, um, racing events and five K's. And I mean, I don't even know where it is half the time. I'm like, where's the truck at? Uh, let me try to come through real quick. I mean, I have no clue where that's at, but the trucks all over the place, the Wing kitchen um, express truck is, is awesome. And it kind of brings the flavors right to the people when, when they need it. And then we're going to be doing, so right now it's, it's, it's popular um, like ghost kitchens.
0: So since mm-hmm. we have a
4: facility to be able to do a ghost kitchen um, and Rowan university doesn't allow food trucks there, we're doing a mobile food truck, which is going to be a ghost chicken, ghost chicken, gosh, a ghost kitchen. I got chicken on the brain. Um, a ghost kitchen that offers all those late night munchies, and you know when it's one o'clock in the morning, and you got your friends, you're looking at each other, and the and the cupboard's bare. You can you know <laughs> go online and order the the winket, <laughs> order the uh, university truck mobile, which is awesome. and, and, and,
5: and very convenient, weeks. very cool, and very convenient. Yes. Now. Uh, yeah, before good. you let everybody know where to find you, um, what are some of your favorite menu items that you make um, or m- one of your more popular menu items that sells out really fast?
4: All right. So, um, goodness. People like, <laughs> What's your favorite sauce? I'm like, Look, like my <laughs> kid, you know, I can't, I'm not supposed to have a favorite kid. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, even though you do have, you know, you're, you're more partial to one or the other. Um, yeah so our our uh our our spicy garlic parm sauce is probably our best seller. Um it, it's uh delicious. Banging. <laughs> it's a banging sauce. Um you can put that on anything. Put that on you know, on your on your coat and eat it and it's delicious. <laughs> so um, the garlic parm sauce is amazing. Um people love the sweet heat sauce. Now all the sauce we, we make, um we make in house and there's no bottles of sauce that comes out. We make everything um but my, my personal favorite this is like the original one um that my son introduced me to so now my son's 13 at the time he was like 10 and he likes spicy the way i like spicy is our um our chicken sandwich so we make a, a chicken tender sandwich but the key is you get it tossed in our honey jalapeno sauce which is not spicy um we take all the seeds and ribs out so you just have the flavor of the jalapenos but you get it kicked up so any sauce that we have, you can get kicked up we have a ghost pepper powder Thing. Any sauce you, you you like spicy, so you get the the tender sandwich, tossed on honey jalapeno, kicked up with our American cheese sauce. Wrap time. Mm. You want something that that's gonna put you to sleep. That's it. Sleep. That's that's how you go to sleep. That sounds delicious. Um, that one is, is one of my yeah, that's one of my personal favorites. <laughs> and then obviously the donut is is nuts. But we also do a buttermilk fried cornbread. Um, oh. So when I told my mom, I said, Mom, I'm going to take a piece of cornbread and fry the way you fried chicken. She's like, you can't do that. I said, all right. Well, she comes over, and I and I make a piece for her, and she says, oh, it's not bad, I guess. I said, all right, Mom. The next day, she calls me and says, baby, you got any more of that cornbread? I said, oh, you want cornbread? I, I didn't hear what you said. You want cornbread? <laughs> yeah, just give me one <laughs> piece and half later." I said, all right. <laughs> so I knew I had a winner. Uh, but, yeah, the buttermilk fried cornbread is crazy, and uh, um, and the boneless wings. Like, we do everything fresh. So, like, the, the tenders we hand-cut, marinate buttermilk and, and spices and hot sauce and fry them to order. The Same thing with the boneless wings. I mean, they're, they're delicious. Um, and any sauce, obviously, you get tossed in, it it's great, but honey jalapeno and uh, the sweet heat garlic parma, they're probably my favorites, so. though.
5: And how many sauces do you actually have available as options?
4: So now we also do special sauces. We try to do special like once a week or every two weeks. Um, but we have uh, Smokehouse Barbecue, Honey alpino, um Sesame Ginger. Uh, we do the um, oh, Sweet Heat, <laughs> Buffalo, Classic Buffalo, and then our Garlic Parm. And then we have some Dry Rubs. We do a Dry Rub uh, Lemon Pepper, a Dry Rub uh, Ranch, and uh, sometimes we have a Dry Rub uh, salt Vinegar, which is also delicious. And then we do a Firecracker Rub which is like um, some Indian spice blends and sugar and um, honey powder and butter powder, and it's, it's, uh, it's delicious. That's a good one also.
5: All right. Now, thank you. That sounds delicious. Now, where can we go to get all those lovely uh, options?
4: All right, listen, if you want to get the goods and get the options, um, first, you know, you visit us on com. It will give you the full menu. Um and that also leads you to Witcher's Kitchen, which gets any kind of catering needs that you may need. Um, if you come by, just visit me um, or visit us at the Wing Kitchen. The first location is 6A Shoppers Lane in Turnersville, New Jersey. And the second location is 114 High Street um, in Glassboro, New Jersey. Um, and listen, come by, say hi, get some goods, come hungry. and um, But this is the thing, though. You got to make sure. If you eat a donut before you leave, you got to wait like 10 to 15 minutes. I don't want anybody driving <laughs> and having a flavor overload and, and swerving their car up. All right. So, <laughs> very important. Or have a donut driver. It's very, very important. All right. All right. So you know, either you're going know, to wait until you get home. Or, yeah, or you got to wait for a little bit. All
5: right. Well, Tim, thank you for joining us. Thank, uh, you, and staff. thank you, Chef. Thank you, Chef.
1: Thank you, Chef. Thank
4: you, Chef. I appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. You're Thank welcome. you.
5: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. <laughs> PhillyRestaurantReviews.com for all information about our
5: show. AmorousPolic. You can find me on social media at ARPolicus or you can email me directly at ARPolicus at gmail.com.
1: Chef Gene!
2: You can find me on social media at yeah, IBFoodie2 or at Gene Bluff, or you can email me directly at IBFoodie2 at yahoo.com. I B F O L D I E the number two at us dot com. Beautiful mm-hmm. Tuesday, everyone.
1: We'll see you next week.